Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clearmotive Marketing. Thank you to my business partner, Chad Croker, and the entire team who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this show a reality. As a founding partner at Clearmotive, I'm excited to announce the official launch of our industrial marketing system. As a company with 15 plus years of experience with a variety of clients in nearly every sector, we identified that industrial manufacturing companies were underserved. You have unique needs, and we have developed a unique skill set to help you succeed. If you build and sell a product that helps other companies, we have developed an industrial marketing system to get your highest priority product in front of your ideal customer profile in less than eight weeks. Gardner recently reported that your buyers are 87% of the way through their buying process before contacting your company directly. That means it's never been more critical to apply the right marketing process to create and close more deals. Our three-stage industrial marketing system helps you shorten your sales cycle by using modern marketing tactics designed specifically for your industry and more importantly, for the way your clients like to buy. Stop sitting on the sidelines wondering which part of your marketing is working and put a system in place that makes it easy for your most valuable prospects to find you and get excited about your solution to their challenges. To find out more about what ClearMotive's industrial marketing system can do for you, please check us out at www.clearmotive.ca IMS, or better yet, open up your email and contact me directly at tyler at clearmotive.ca, T-Y-L-E-R. I'm excited to chat with you and put a plan in place to get your most valuable leads contacting you and not your competitors. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Dr. David J. Finch. How are you, sir? Good morning, Tyler. Fantastic. Uh, uh, this will be aired sometime later, but we're in the middle of a beautiful uh, Calgary summer week of Stampede, full on. You got the Western shirt on. I shied away from it this morning. I just went, even though the audience isn't seeing us. You've been doing much Stampeding? Have you been getting out there? It seems like there's an event on top of an event on top of events this season. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, we're, we're in hard as a city. So it's, uh, it's nice. the bounce back, right? So yeah, all I'm in. Doing, <laughs> I'm doing a little. I kind of over Stampeded early in my career. So I'm kind of, on, <laughs> I'm still with that hangover, man. I, I I appreciate. It. I had a bad experience. You know, I, I got it. And it's only it's what is the it day? It's only Wednesday. I, I was I met some people yesterday. They're like, I've already been in for seven days. I'm I'm dying. I can't handle it. I got I got to take a night off. Rally, rally. So you are a full professor and senior fellow for the Institute for Community Prosperity. And yes, I sound like I'm reading it because I'm creeping on your LinkedIn. You're at Mount Royal University and you've been there for, there for a while. So let's jump in the old elevator of give us break that down for us. What is it? What does you do, David? Kind of what? What's your, what are you excited about and what kind of keeps you busy over at Mount Royal? So I, I went into academia late in life uh, relative to, to most. So I ended up going back to school and doing my PhD, Tyler, when I was 40. And, okay. and you know, doing a PhD is, is because, frankly, I spent the first 20 years asking more questions than I could answer. Um, and <laughs> I, like I wanted to spend some time, especially my kids were young. So I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll do the stay at home dad thing and do my PhD. And that uh, really worked out well. But, uh, oh, cool. the first, the first 20 years of my life, I, pl- I was in different marketing roles, government relations roles, uh, for large companies like Bell Canada and uh, Rogers. And then in my last part of my, uh, career in, in private practice, I ran an agency Around sport and promotional marketing that I um, founded with partner in Toronto, so I ran Western Canada. Oh, very cool! So, spent some time in the trenches, or however you want to refer to it, before getting into academia, which is also not a model sometimes 
the old joke, those who do do and those who can't teach. I don't think that's true, but I have heard someone make that, that joke before. I love that credibility or certainly the reality of the, and I want to be careful how I say this, the real world of working it and living it and then coming back. Was teaching and just being in a, sorry, this isn't a story about your personal history, but being that educator and being able to kind of share what you know, has that always just been part of your DNA? Because I feel for the people that do it well, it's, it's almost more of a calling than it is just, it's not, it's not just a job, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a passion for it. Um, I always say, and somebody early in my career, when I was in my early 20s working at Bell Canada, I had a wonderful mentor. And uh, he said, hey, Fitch, you think horizontally, and, and most people think vertically. And I didn't know what he meant, but it's about systems thinking and connecting ideas together. And, and when you look at that you know, empirically, in fact, he's right. The vast majority of people love going deep into a topic and spend less time thinking about how that topic issue or expertise connects with other parts of the system. And I'm the exact opposite. Um, don't take me overly deep, but I start seeing connections. And uh, that is the curiosity question, right? I see, I see a lot of questions uh, and I'm very curious about these things. And when I move into academia, I always say, you know, being an educator um, is about really stimulating curiosity. If you can stimulate, I always talk about two triggers. Um, it's kind of the intersection of, of curiosity, uh, the, the other component is empathy, and then the third leg of that stool is professional confidence. And the secret sauce is, in fact, you know, facilitating all three of those. Because when you think about the very nature of curiosity, um, and empathy, it's about, you know, those fundamental traits. Um, you need to be uh, humble. You can't know all things, right? If you think you know all things, you're not a very curious person. If you think you know all things, you're not going to be overly empathetic. But if you, in fact, are, are, are open and are recognizing there's a humility there, then you ask a lot of questions. And that's really what, what uh, you know, I view successful educators do, is to stimulate that curiosity. So interesting. And talk to, talk to me a little bit. Uh, I like how you tied curiosity, professional confidence, rather than assuming I know what you mean in the context of saying that. How would you define that in, in relation to the other two? Well, it, just in regards to, you know, I, I teach um, our capstone marketing class in our Bachelor of Business Administration, and I've taught that course for about 10 years. And it's a competitive world um, in regards to our graduates. I always use the data point that is dated now, but it has, uh, it's relevant. It, it is the fact that for every job at, at Google, there are 8,000 applications. Uh, and, and the question is, so why you? Um, and you're going to be going toe-to-toe -to -toe as a graduate who has invested in Alberta about $65,000 in a four-year degree, spent about 10,000 oh. hours um, going to school. Um, unfortunately, you're not unique. In fact, that's about the most commoditized thing in our, in our world is formal education. So if you assume that eight, those 8,000 applications, 7,999, have that same piece of paper walked across a similar stage. What makes you different? And it's not the piece of paper. It's not anything you've read in a book. Um, and therefore, it can be over. It can be daunting out there for new graduates who who walk out and realize that this thing they've been uh, told uh, since they were five years old is the holy grail of professional success. Is a promise. So, so we need to, in fact, have them graduate and recognize. In fact, it's not about the piece of paper. Uh, it's about so much more, and if they can walk, and that's not about classroom learning. It's about everything that wraps around it over that over that stage of their life. 
that just makes a far better person and a far better professional. Hmm. Uh, oh, you said so many things in there. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull back a little bit just to touch on kind of some of your own nature and the way you explained your curiosity and kind of wanting to turn over the apple cart a little bit and ask questions about what's underneath the apple cart as well as what's on top. How does that fly in the world of post-secondary? And maybe I'm also, you use your Google reference saying it was a bit dated. I, I believe that it is changing, but I'm going to maybe think with the oversimplified and paradigm of post-secondary being very set in, this is our curriculum, this is how we teach what we teach. This is what we've done for, you know, these are storied organizations across North America. We could, we could name names and easy, easily they would be recognizable as some of the leading educating brands. Change and doing things differently isn't always what I've associated in that world. And I know things are changing. So maybe just talk about you getting in there. You felt, it sounded like you were describing maybe potentially you were being the fly in the ointment a little bit of going like, no, no, we need to flip this over. We need to turn it and look at it and, and pull it apart. Maybe commentary on just post-secondary in general as our rapidly changing world. But is that a fair stereotype that I kind of floated out there? And is it, is it changing? And kind of what's been your perspective on it? Sure. I, the first thing I would do, and, and much of my work does, is saying um, post-secondary is just one piece of the puzzle. It's a relatively small piece of the puzzle, and we've got to look at things far more holistically back to my horizontal thinking. So when I, when I first walked into post-secondary, which I had no intention of becoming, again, a professor, even when I was doing my PhD, I was doing it to become a consultant in a, in a very specialized area. What I was shocked by was the, uh, and guess what they do in first year professors? They had you the first year marketing class. Uh, and I was just shocked by the lack of readiness of high school graduates um, as they're walking into a university. And there was just no transition. Um, there was no preparation. It was, the handoff was a mess. And, and because guess what? Um, these are two worlds that have very, uh, just politically have different ministries. Um, there's not a ton of contiguous uh, planning between going from K to 12 and then moving into a post-secondary environment. So the handoff is messy. Um, and, and in regards to post-secondary itself, so in the it, post-secondary itself is incredibly diverse um, as well. So you're dealing with what we're going to call in, in the Canadian context, U15 uh, uh, schools, which are research universities. So um, okay. U of C and U of A are called U15 schools with um, uh, an advanced research mandate. Um, and what you see there uh, to a great extent is uh, environments where the, the return on investment, the kind of the driver for many of the uh, individuals at U15 schools, in fact, is their advanced their research agenda. Um, that's why they are there. Um, and okay. and there's not saying there aren't fantastic educators there. Of course there are. Mm -hmm. But their mandate, in fact, the mandate defined by their tenure criteria, which is a really important part of this of this change model we need to deal with, is the tenure criteria rewards that. That's the quote-unquote publisher parish uh, model, right? Okay. And therefore, rewarding education, um, they're late in the game uh, in regards to rewarding education. On the other side of the spectrum, you're, you're, you're looking at things like community colleges. So things like traditional Bow Valley College and equivalent mm -hmm. across the country, which are you know one to two year diplomas or certificates. The transition is far more work ready oriented. And then, and then in between there, you've got two other kind of major categories. One is undergraduate universities. Mount Royal falls into that. McEwen falls into that, where we don't teach any graduate programs. And our mandate primarily is 
uh, education and, and of course all the faculty engage in research, but it's about really how does that research embed in our, in our primary mandate, which is around education. Okay. And, then the th and then the final component is a polytechnique, so SAIT. Right, which again is preparing students very differently than the other three. So you look at the the very skilled trades orientation they have and so forth. Um, they run between uh, one and four year programs because they offer bachelor's degrees as well. Um, but again, very hands on. So when it comes to upsetting the apple cart, in fact, you've got to upset all of them. Uh, and and then you have to look at how the system can work better together because that's my primary focus is the incredible inefficiency of the system because it's not a system. It's a bunch of random institutions doing random things and wondering why we're not getting maximum return on it as a society. Mm -hmm. But then the word, you know, the education system maybe gets thrown around inappropriately based on what you just said. We're really talking about the quintessential siloed model. Yeah, it's a, the system. The only thing we're systematic about is we all report in the Ministry of Higher Education. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a funding model that cascades down. Um, and and that's the system. But But again, it's like any other quote unquote competitive environment, right? which I don't view it competitive. I think that's the wrong lens, but I've certainly been in no shortage of meetings where um, there, there's a perspective that um, we're competing for that same student. Uh, and right. therefore, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time helping you um, and I don't need your help because we're fighting for that same student and that same tuition. And that's just a fundamentally wrong perspective for, for public sector institutions. And is that even... Is that a little blurrier in Canada because there is funding come you know from a government perspective versus the U.S. maybe more of a pure business model? Like, I'm just curious, kind of what you know. Always look at the mechanisms and the way our system works often creates the outcomes. You know, if you don't if you don't want to shoot out the window, don't hard don't hang the target in front of it. But I was shooting at the target. But did you look what was behind what was behind the target? Kind of yeah, mindset. Is that, is that a bit PhD. messy that way in Canada? Yeah, and I did my PhD in the States, and I taught in the States. I taught at Ohio University. Uh, on, oh, okay. And so I got exposed to that dynamic, and you're right. Um, the systems are very different, but the systems, uh, Tyler, are very different all over the world. Um, so Fair. the U.S. is 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 not a system, again. It, it's, a, it's a mess of pu public and private institutions. It has on the one extreme... Um, private universities such as um, the Stanfords of the world or the Harvards of the world, which have billions and billions of dollar bursaries uh, and, uh, and um, uh, f foundations that are primarily being driven by alumni that elevate it to a level that guess what, a small little community college in Ohio can't compete with, right? Yeah, right. Um, and then you've got everything in between. So it is really, that is, that is that. Is that. Canada, um, what you have with that system problem arguably is the top is, the top, high of the top is, is as elite as you're gonna get. It, frankly, it's a microcosm of the United States, right? So it's, it's as good as you're gonna get globally. Uh, and there is no ceiling on, on what they can do at Harvard and Stanford, MIT, you name the school. But the mm -hmm. bottom, there is no floor um, in regards to uh, post-secondary institutions, the quality of the education. Um, just like there is in American society, there is no floor. And so that type of polarization um, uh, and that type of society where there's just, it's a free market, it's a free market. Canada... Um, has essentially somewhat of a ceiling because we do have, these are all public institutions. U of A, U of T are world-class ranked institutions for research, no question about it. 
but but we have no floor. So when you look at uh, look at any colleges or what have you, or 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 smaller universities, um, because they all have to maintain because of the accreditation and so forth a very high quality education that that they perform exceptionally well, and that's frankly similar to our banking system. Um, there's a ton of stability there, but it's it's it has the potential, my my perspective, to make Canada leading edge in a ton of different areas, and specific an area I'm focused in, which is around adaptivity. But it's just mm-hmm. not performing well right now. Interesting. Okay, let's park that for a second. Let's now talk about, because I want to bring all this back together, course, my own yeah. vision of where this conversation is going to go. We've got a world where you cannot turn on a TV or read an article about job shortage and about the talent wars. And, and I've also got, a, in my mind, I've got my 19-year-old nephew who's not sure where he wants to go. And then I've got my 45-year-old friend who's looking to reskill and retool because his career or her career of whatever it was, I'm thinking a few individuals specifically, in the energy sector, we'll just pick on Alberta a little bit in that context, is changed so much. They don't know where to go and how to even fit into this. So when you look at kind of the realities of the world of work and the world of rapid everything, <laughs> dot, 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 yep. thinking about that from the, the student or the learner, 18 all the way to 65, I'm assuming. Like there is really no age range. Like how does that layer up or what are you seeing happening there as everything, again, I don't want to use COVID as an excuse, but everything that was happening, it just seems like it's happening faster and the impacts seem to be more prevalent. Careers are disappearing, new careers are popping up and everyone I know who's in a position to hire is struggling for talent, skilled or otherwise, or just even labor. Is uh, I need someone to run a shovel and no one, I'll hire 20 people and 10 of them won't even show up the first day. Like it, it's a real problem across the board. When you look at your world and how it then leans up against that, what's your perspective on kind of how things are happening kind of you know, out there on the street, if you will? Yeah, so again, when you look at education and you look at skill development, and I've, I've adopted the term of skill development, um, and but it's, it's, you know, an overused term is lifelong learning, right? Um, but it's literally <laughs> from birth to death, right? And here's the, the, here's the, the problem we're dealing with. <clears throat> the uh, education system that was designed and expanded significantly uh, in the UK originally in the, in the mid-1800s was focused on universal literacy, right? A beautiful mandate to ensure we had universal literacy, right? It was also designed... Uh, reflect the fundamentals of the industri- first industrial revolution, right? So it was defined around, around recognizing efficiencies and mass production. That's what the industrial revolution did. So you went from a cobbler producing uh, a single pair of shoes to a, a, a factory producing millions of shoes, right? Mm-hmm. Guess what? All those shoes are the same, right? Why? Because that creates efficiency in the system. So the architects of the original education uh, system in the mid-1800s at mass level mimicked the production of shoes. Um, they said, Which makes perfect sense when you say it that way. Like, why wouldn't they have? Because that was the need at the time. <laughs> How do I get millions of people through the system, right? And so, and so sure, what, what happened? Over 100 years, we got to universal literacy. It delivered on its mandate, right? So the, the, the kudos to the architects of that system to be able to get there. And that then lifts everyone up because it lifts opportunities up. It lifts, lifts career prospects up. It starts moving towards higher levels of equality because it's not about who your daddy or mommy is. It's about what you can do, hmm. right? Here's the challenge, though, from a math perspective. Um, in Canada, in 1900, life expectancy was 49 years old. Right. So so going to school and viewing education as a life stage, primarily learning 
skills that can mm. be monetized between the ages of 16 and 20, whether you be a blacksmith or a bookkeeper, made sense, right? Why? Because between 20 and your late 40s, before you had died, you were a blacksmith. <laughs> Nine um, years before you died, totally. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So you, yeah, yeah. you worked for 30 years, roughly, um, and then you died. Right. Um, that was the simple <laughs> realities of life. Put a, put, put a bow on it and put send a it. bow on it and yeah, set no, it off. For sure. And yeah. on top, on top of that though, Tyler really puts it in context though, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It does. It does. But guess what? But in 1900, whether you're a bookkeeper or a blacksmith, uh, if you learned that trade when you were, um, uh, say 17 in 1900, and then by 1930, guess what? Being a bookkeeper and blacksmith was fundamentally the same. Not yeah, much had yes. changed dramatically, right? So that skill you could learn at that moment in, li in life and then monetize. I look at everything through a business case. You monetize those skills for the next 30 years. Because there was no dramatic change on a ledger uh, or how to be a blacksmith, I didn't have to relearn. I could monetize it and move on, right? We are now in an environment, you move from a life expectancy of 49 to a life expectancy of my kids, for example, will be well into their hundreds. Uh, their, their career went from 30 years to a minimum 60 years, probably closer to 70, that they, will, that they will likely work. So then you step back and say, fantastic, what I'm learning when I'm 18 is something I'm going to be able to monetize when I'm 65, um, you know, 50 odd years later is insane. It makes no yeah. sense at all, right? But we've got us a society that challenges its culture and conditioning. We've been conditioned since we were babies to think about education as life stage, think about a prize at the end of a high school called diploma at the end of post-secondary walking across the stage. You get a prize and then, you, and then you get to reap the rewards of that prize, right? For the next X number of years. Then you hit Freedom 55 and you cruise off into the sunset, right? And you get the, go and you get the gold watch. That and one's getting a little old and long in the tooth, but that's still floating around out there, right? That is the, not... The, the that reference, some people get it. <laughs> <laughs> and that math, this doesn't work. And so, and so yeah. for that reason, um, when you, you know, your example of your nephew, uh, and then I think it was your uncle or your, your, your friend that's retraining... That's, that's the reality of modern life, right? So, so therefore, we have to look at the role of education very differently uh, from a design perspective. Mm, oh, so well. Thank you. I, I, love, I love the research you've done and putting, putting a floor under it to really understand whether we're happy or not happy with the way it is today. Understanding how it got here, I do always believe adds value. When you look at the different, like from post-secondary post being a very broad sweep from you know, polytechnics, is there anywhere like... I'm just, I guess what I'm asking, what, what, what am I asking? Are there certain groups or there's or certain versions of post-secondary that are responding better or more um, in reflection to how things are changing? Old, research-driven, this is the way we've done it, used the word tenure a couple of times. Those aren't quick moving, quick to adjust. When I think polytechnics, I think, well, more tech skills and like really trying to adapt to what happened with industry. Like, and maybe I'm unfairly trying to point a finger in a direction of like, well, this group is actually maybe a little better set to respond just by their DNA versus some of these other groups. Yeah, and that's exactly what you need to look at it, is the DNA, okay. right? Um, and and um, that's exactly what I walked into post-secondary. I had this mythical perception of what a business school would be. Um, <laughs> uh, and my first two degrees, Tyler, are in political science. Um, so I actually, I came from the liberal arts. And then I, and then I, was, I practiced, right? I, then I was in industry for 20-odd years. 
Um, and then I went back and did my PhD. Um, but the, the challenge with the sector as a whole, and I'm going to circle back to tenure because it really, really matters and creates some of the, the entrenchment in the, in the organization, in the culture of the organization and system. Entrenchment is the death of adaptive capacity because, <laughs> uh, because when you look at the entrenchment, how it's specifically operationalized in a university context in, in, in North America um, specifically, because this does not exist globally, um, the idea of tenure, all right? So tenure emerged out of, from the Middle Ages, essentially a freedom of thought. So I need to be independent um, I need to have autonomy as a researcher and thinker, think Galileo, right? To think about things and not worry about the church or politicians or others that would start contaminating the purity of my research, right? So there, there was merit historically why the idea of tenure emerged. So I had protection from societal pressures to pursue just the big idea, right? Which is really critical, right? Now what it's unfortunately transitioned into is tenure is now a lifetime contract that in a world that no one signs lifetime contracts. Because if you get tenure, say, when you're 32 or 33, and, and one of the things I was really intrigued by when I went into post-secondary, um, I always talk about the first what's called a doctoral consortium went to at Dalhousie. And it was you know a room full of all the doctoral students in Canada um, and uh, it, pursuing specifically uh, PhDs in business management and related areas, right? And, and they had a mock hiring panel. So they had literally a bunch of esteemed professors from across North America actually on this hiring panel, all us keener somethings, uh, thinking we want to become professors. We want to become, become professors. So I'm looking at this room full of literally most people in their 20s, the odd person in their 30s, then me way up there in my early 40s going, uh, this is odd. So I put up my hand and I asked the simple question. The simple question was how, as I'm, again, competitive context, how do I use my professional experience to differentiate myself uh, in, the, in the employment marketplace? Thinking there's a sweet spot. I think I have some unique you know, value proposition that contribute. The answer was, it was a guy from Louisiana uh, State University said, son, um, your professional experience uh, isn't an asset, it's a liability uh, because you've been contaminated. And I went, huh. And I thought there was a joke and there was no laughter in the room. <laughs> that was right? the end. <laughs> and, and I went, contaminated? What the hell is he talking about? And then when you start moving into it, you have to look at kind of the history. But then that's exactly what it is. It's the, it's the respect for the purity of the science. And if you've in fact worked uh, in industry or work so in government, you've in fact been contaminated by practice and therefore you, you in fact are going to infect um, uh, the White Ivory Tower through that experience. And then I said, wow, that's like, for me, it's like the intersection of theory and practice is why we exist, right? Especially in a business school. Like I get it if you're maybe in you know, a, a theoretical physicist or studying English literature, maybe, but in a business <laughs> context, and, and that's when I went into business, the business school and realized, oh my God, like none of these people have ever worked in any of these fields, right, that they're working. And I'm not speaking Mount Royal because Mount Royal, because of its history, actually is, uh, is an anomaly. So, so what we, one of our first studies we did, I built something called the, the Business School Research Network. 
which then uh, attracted a variety of people, primarily, ironically, senior in their academic careers. So, you know, associate dean at U of A, the associate dean at Haskane, and, 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 and 13 different schools across the country to do one thing. I wanted to study the biographies of business school faculty because there, no one's ever studied it because the assumption of contamination is this. That somehow, if you've worked, if you haven't worked in industry, you are more laser guided focused on your contribution to scholarship. And if you've worked in industry, you're going to be distracted. You're going to probably do a lot of more consulting, and you won't make a significant contribution from a scholarly perspective to the field. So interesting. So, so when what we did is, I literally uh, brought in a few students. They spent a year and a half coding 900 faculty resumes, right? I literally said, okay, everyone at the School of Business at Dalhousie, find their LinkedIn profile, find their resume, right. and we create a very rigorous coding model. This is what we've discovered. Um, seven out of 10, and I only focused at tenure and tenure track faculty, and that's important. Okay. So seven out of 10 business school faculty uh, across these institutions range from a low of about 5% to a high of about 85%. Um, had no professional experience, right? So I always say uh, that HR professor you may have um, read about how to manage people, but actually statistically probably never managed a person never their life, it. right? And, and therefore you wonder why. So you sit there and go, this is why you're dealing with a, such a theoretical context because what happens is this insulation. So what happens, Tyler, from an from a educational perspective is um, that rock star undergraduate student um, is, is refocused on their grades. Perfect, fantastic GPA. Maybe they're seen by a, a, a professor that says, that kid's got something. You want to come and do a master's, I'll be your supervisor. So what do they do? They go straight from their four-year undergraduate right into a one- or two-year master's program, supervised, right? Then they're like laser-guided in that silo, fully insulated because they're in the comfort zone of where they're comfortable, which is academia, right? Yeah. Then, they, then um, that professor says, you know what? You're fantastic. You want to do a PhD? I'm, I'm totally, I'm in my zone here. I'm getting respect. I'm in my echo chamber. I'll do my PhD in marketing. Perfect. Nine years over that length of time on average. So you're now spending probably between nine and 12 years in university. They graduate uh, on average about when they're 32 from a, a management degree. Uh, they have a PhD, they have no professional experience. And then, and then when you look at the research and there's data, that, data collected on this every year, the proportion of people doing PhDs in management or related areas, 85% of them state they have no interest in working industry, they want to stay in academia. Is that then go? Which, of which kind of makes sense because that's what you know. That's what that's, you're comfortable. And that's their with. comfort zone. So we've yeah, created this filter because it creates a comfort zone, right, um, <laughs> for people. And so then they get in their tenure. So they're 32. They get that first assistant professor job. They then they then are then focus, focus, focus because their value system has been framed by by their graduate school. Mm -hmm. What do they value? They value research. What do they value? They value publications. What do they value? They value citations, right? What do they maybe don't value is maybe the role as an educator um, because that's not anything they've been trained on. They do it, but they're not trained on it. God knows. Um, and therefore, they're, they're all yeah. of a sudden, mid-30s, mid they're, they're tenured. And then we wonder why um, 
why why they don't have any, for example, network in the in a in a in in a city or the city that they're going they they teach in? Because they were inside their little they were inside their little echo chamber. Their network is internal, yeah. not external, right? So mm-hmm. so this there's a structural problem that that we need to deal with. And for me, it starts, um, you know, right at undergrad as you move to graduate school to make sure you start creating mechanisms for that intersection um, and uh, intersection of theory and practice because the research we did, and this is the finding of this study. So the contamination theory was was tested. And here's the deal. So um, of the 70% uh, from a academic, what we call academic-only faculty, and then the other spectrum, other side, was professional-only faculty, so people that didn't have a terminal degree but worked in industry. And then we isolated a, a very unique group of people called bridge faculty, right? Bridge faculty are people mm-hmm. who've spent considerable time in both worlds. So the bridge faculty, according to the theory of contamination, I should be too distracted. I should be really thinking about how do I impact society and run around presenting. I don't even know how you even function. I mean, that's what I'm curious Because <laughs> <laughs> clearly this is, this, this is an anomaly that only occurs occasionally in the wild. <laughs> uh, and so what, what we saw, Tyler, from that study is hmm. that the theory of contamination from um, both a productivity perspective does not exist because the bridge faculty publish at the exact same rate as academic-only faculty. They publish at the exact same level. So again, the idea of somehow they don't publish in the highest level journals is in fact statistically incorrect. Um, however, what they do do is they're twice as likely to disseminate that research uh, to practice. So I then activate my network and present at the chamber. I then activate my network and publish in an industry magazine because that's important to me. But it doesn't say I don't also publish in the highest journals, right? And that, but it, uh, it doesn't actually detract. It, it doesn't. There's not. It's see, not. A it zero feels sum. to me, as someone who leans clearly on that side, that it's actually much more of a of a multiplier of value. It 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 is. And so and so the question there is, we've got an entrenched base of wonderful faculty. I'm not putting down these faculty because they are a product. Mm-hmm. of the condition they've grown up in, the product of, of the, the culture that's produced them. How mm-hmm. do we turn that 32-year-old who literally has never worked in, in marketing, how do we get them engaged in the industry? How do we get them valuing industry? How do we get them, mm-hmm. in fact, opening up and being able to bring those experiences into their research and into their education? That is an opportunity. And that's not easy, but it's, but it's uh, you know, one path to starting to open up education. Now, on the other side of, of the uh, system, where you look at polytechniques and, and community colleges, uh, generally, they don't have a tenure model. So there's no mm-hmm. tenure there. So no one it's signed lifetime contracts. They're coming from professional practice. There's very few people that would have explicitly been educators. Um, and so it's a whole different dynamic. And that issue of agility really matters. And so, and so, and again, one of the other dynamics in post-secondary, specifically in universities, and this is where people who aren't in a university context, it's hard for them to understand. So in a non-university context, in a private sector context, there's a boss, right? There's a boss and a boss says, we're going that way. Who's behind me? Let's go, right? Uh, And if you don't want to go, you move on. Um, And then I get to go and hire my own staff to kind of get us from A to B based on the mm-hmm. skills I'm looking You for. put your team together and you do the thing. Bingo, mm-hmm. exactly. And so what happens in university? No. In fact, the model is <laughs> totally inverted, right? So um, it's inverted in the sense that who, what's the governance model of a university? It's faculty. It's faculty. It's the university senate. It's the it's, uh, equivalent. 
Faculty make all decisions. Faculty hire, fa uh, hire faculty. Faculty hire deans. Faculty hire administration. Right. So, so when you look at the churn, for example, one of the you know the average shelf life. And the, this may be slightly dated, but dramatically though, the average shelf life of a dean in, of a business school in North America is three years. Right. Um, because they get fired by faculty. I, and then if you look at the horrendous examples of when you start bringing people from the private sector, I'm going to bring CEO from company X to take care of this business school. Um, there are very few examples where that lasts more than a couple of years because that person walks in like they, they are running a company and then they get fired by their faculty because their faculty just says, no, I don't think so. And then goes home. And then, and then the CEO's going, what? I thought it was the CEO. I'm like, no, you're a dean. There's a fundamental difference because as a dean, I'm in charge as faculty. As a CEO, you're in charge. And that is really a unique element, but it also creates very significant difficult in trying to pivot and adapt that institution when you've got thousands of decision makers called faculty uh, without a cohesive view of what the future can look like. And, and who have bought into and have followed along the journey. So why would you, you know, you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face kind of mindset. Like you got to have to really get a, that's a tough thing to get consensus around to change an, an entrenched model that we're all actively participating. Yeah. And so one of the studies we did complement that was we actually looked at, we looked at a hire, we did a study of all hiring of business school faculty in the U.S. So the second study we did as part of this is uh, looked at what are the criteria. And the, and the study was called Follow the Leader. And Follow the Leader did this. What we found was, guess what business schools did? Business school faculty, remember, remember how, high, how business schools are, are hired. Uh, business school faculty are hired by, uh, by faculty. So there's a hiring committee by faculty. The dean may or may not be on it. Um, they write the job criteria, they interview, they make a, a recommendation for hiring. Guess what we saw in this study uh, is about, I'm going to say a couple thousand job postings. What happened is the hiring criteria for the business school mirrored the faculty of that business school. So they hired people that looked like them, right? Um, except there were two exceptions to that, um, two exceptions. One was that inner circle of schools like Harvard and Stanford, right? Because they, they are the leaders. They don't need to follow anyone. So if you look at innovation, innovation actually starts in the middle. Harvard introduced something called a DBA, a Doctoral Business Administration, right? Which uh, it, in many institutions aren't even, isn't even recognized as a doctoral degree. Here's the big difference. The graduate of the average age of a graduate of a PhD is 32, as I said, uh, with zero professional experience. The average age of a DBA, a Doctoral Business Administration, is 46 with 16 years of professional experience, right? But it's, they, they talk, well, they, they're professionals. They do it later in life, right? So, right. But, so, yeah. so, so similar, that, to your, similar to your exact experience. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that inner circle, uh, Tyler, that inner circle doesn't need to follow anyone, right? The outer circle were schools like Mount Royal. Uh, we're realists. I'm not trying to be Harvard. I'm not trying to be Stanford. <laughs> I'm trying to be my own thing. And therefore, there, there's a ton of autonomy associated with that lack of, of trying to aspire to be that mythical school. The, the, the largest orbit is that second ring, right? So the second ring are those schools who view 
Harvard and Stanford is the mythical goal. And they also then project what a Harvard and Stanford is, which is about publishing and parish and scholarship and all that stuff. So they then create their tenure criteria and hiring criteria to reflect what they think those schools are. Well, because so they're, they're, because they're, they're mirroring, they're mirroring that. They're, they're, they're mirroring the myth, not the reality, right? And so what you get is... <laughs> that doesn't sound dangerous at all. <laughs> and, and so what you get, what you get is a whole bundle of schools um, saying, if we're going to be a real university, we do it this way. Wait, um, that's what, and that's the problem we're in right now. Ooh, that's a tough, that's a tough cycle too, because that's a generational cycle. Um, mm -hmm. Just to create a parallel track, let's talk about the 32-year-old who started, and let's just pick agency. They started working in agency at 20, out of high school. Maybe they did a couple years. Maybe they did a basic degree. But now they've got 12 years of experience. But they don't have the quote-unquote designation of the piece of paper or the, you know, and you and I chatted about this before, which we'll get into. Like, well, I don't care where you learn to drive. If you can pass the test, it means you know how to drive. And I know a lot of marketers, we're going to pick on that because it's not a technically a professionally designated space. I know a lot of fantastic individuals are like, oh, my degree is in something totally unique, but I've been doing this for 12 years and now I'm at such a you know, strategy or whatever the level may be. How does that level up when you look at a world where you've probably got organizations that value one versus the other and maybe diminish one? How do we create a little bit of balance in that? I think marketing is a great one to pick on too. Yeah, and marketing is a great one to pick on. So a study I did early in my career it was with Canadian Marketing Association. Um, uh, we looked at that question amongst others. And what we found in that study was 12% of people who called themselves marketers had any formal education in marketing which sound, frankly sounds about right. I got two degrees. Nah, I, I, I wouldn't argue with that stat for a second. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 but, but here's the problem. It, there's an impact on uh, professional identity and there's, there's a, a fairly significant imposter syndrome dynamic. Um, uh, because old imposter syndrome, absolutely. They, they don't Seventy percent of people real. admit it. Thirty percent of the rest lie about it. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> well, and and think <laughs> about back to professional <laughs> confidence, right? If you think somehow that person with an MBA in marketing yeah. is better than you because they have an MBA in marketing, that's a challenge, right? Yeah, so you're already back. So exactly. So so this idea of um, you know this moves us into a, a very disruptive idea that we're piloting in Calgary right now. And this idea of, of what I call decoupling. So use the example of a driver's license, right? The entire education system is de designed what I call a kind of an integrated accreditation system. So that says you go to school and the person who teaches you is uniquely qualified to, in fact, certify that you learned something in grade one to allow you to go to grade two or uniquely qualified to give you that high school diploma or uniquely qualified to give you that grade in undergraduate and ultimately hand you a diploma. That, um, that is the integrated model. It says, go to school, learn something, and then I test you at the end of that something and we say whether you got there, right? What does that fundamentally do? It, it, it turns accreditation into a proprietary asset as opposed to a public asset because it only the individuals who are teaching are then qualified to award that credential and it creates a monopoly. It turns accreditation and certification into um, something that's owned uh, by, uh, by a specific organization or group as opposed to a public asset. A public asset says, in fact, the decoupled model argues, like a driver's license is a public asset. You can have any range of approaches to learn how to drive. You could, you could go to a driving school. You could be taught by grandma and grandpa. You could go to the farm and learn on a tractor. We don't care because the only thing we are going to certify your skill in is can you drive a car, not the path you, you, you use to get there. 
if you so turn if you so simple when you away, use it with that framework because we right. can all relate to that one <laughs> right and so if you decouple that guess what that does so working with calgary economic development over the last several years what we did was audited what i call the um it's the calgary uh skill development ecosystem but this yeah. is what we looked at we said there's there's three types of paths to learning um one is through and they, they interact obviously with one another one is Certified learning, so what we're talking about, uh, accredited education, professional designations, and so forth. So that's certified learning. In other words, you, you're handed something to accredit some skill at the end of it. Then there's non-certified learning, and that is when you go to conferences or workshops, or kids go to summer camps, or, or you go to um, a sport and recreation program. Um, you go to church, where there's stuff being learnt, right? But at the end of it, um, you're likely given nothing or you're potentially given a piece of paper that said, congratulations, you came and showed up this week for this you attended, PD. You attended. You attended. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the third element is what we call informal um, skill development. And so that, that is a podcast, honestly. That is YouTube. <laughs> That's a part it's my It's my mini MBA every day when exactly, I get to talk to you, to, to all my amazing guests. But, yes, but it's... I it's also, I, 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 yeah, it's also a part-time job. It's a summer job. It's volunteering community. These are all assets, right? So what we spent uh, for the last 18 months studying with a team of students from across post-secondary institutions in Calgary was auditing that system. And what we identified was this. We found about 3,100 organizations that are delivering skill development programming right now. So that covers both certified and non-certified programs. And is this specifically, the 3100 specifically in Calgary? In Calgary specifically. Okay, we put well, a, yeah, just put in contact, yeah. Just to we put a, we put, put, a, put a footprint put a around, around it, look, the, look at the census metropolitan area of Calgary. So again, okay. what does that include? Churches. That includes arts organizations, community organizations, libraries. Yes, it also includes mm -hmm. universities and colleges and elementary schools. Um, and so when you start mapping that out, 3,100 organizations delivering about 31,000 different programs and about 3.5 million learning experiences. So, but here's the trigger point. The most important part of that is, hmm, so how much is, of that sits in the certified bucket? How much of that sits in the provincially accredited and funded certified bucket? Uh, I, I, I'm going to get the math slightly wrong, but it's about 7%, right? Okay, um, so... Over 80% of the, of the ecosystem, in fact, are uh, Calgary-based uh, civic-level organizations, 75%, which are either nonprofit or for-profit, right? So this is the incredible ecosystem out there that's doing development, but doesn't have the ability to actually award anything at the end of that experience, right? Because they're not accredited. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does that do? It creates a very different dynamic, which which a data point I extract from it saying this is dangerous because it reflects a problem at the system that you don't know until you see the data. And this is the point we coded of those 31 organizations. We coded age. How old are they? Um, 80 percent are over the age of 20 years old. Hmm. Right. So you sit there and go, where the hell are the, the, the new the new innovators, where are the like startups? Guess what? They're getting crushed. They're not sustaining themselves. Why? And I and I'm I'm hypothesizing it's the halo. And this is the halo problem. I want to say my son wants to learn computer programming. 
You can look at a, a, a cool nonprofit coding school that's doing something, doing something really cool. You could look at a for-profit startup doing some really innovative coding. Or you could look at Mount Royal University or U of C or SAGE or mm -hmm. Bow Valley and say, oh, they're doing coding too. Oh, I've heard of them. Uh, they've, they've been given the, the magic tap by being able to be accredited. They must be better. And the halo pulls them in. It's the incumbent advantage, right? And, and they're pulled in. And guess what? That nonprofit, yeah. not for-profit, it goes out of business, right? And so the very structure of the model, it, it creates this natural incumbent advantage. Remember, my first 10 years were in telecom. This is exactly what I saw in telecommunications and why, <laughs> yes, why we have to unpack that immediately as soon as you said that as context. Right? <laughs> we have to unpack the system because if you don't, the incumbent always wins and you don't innovate. And that's what I think we're seeing right now. Okay, so now my big question is, so how do we change it? <laughs> the easiest, that's the most, so I'm like, because now you're going to tell us exactly how we're going to fix it, right? Of course. Because <laughs> you've very well positioned the challenge, the, the problem, the opportunity, but how do we recognize and how do we, how do we move us in a direction that obviously is going to be a force multiplier for any ecosystem? Like we're, we're focusing on Calgary. This is collisions YYC, but we don't, we don't live in a geodesic dome, but I appreciate you focus so hard on Calgary. And as we run forward at this great pace towards a new tech ecosystem and all the buzzwords that get thrown around, all of these gaps and all of these legacy items are what are one of the many factors that will hold us back if, if we are held back, put it that way. So what, what do you see as a potential solution, even from a, you know, throw the big idea because you're smiling. So I know you, I know you, I know you have it, but I appreciate change takes lifetimes and, you know, best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but if not, let's get it planted this morning. When you think about it that way, how do you see some of this transcribing to actually making a difference over the next five, 10 years? I think the audio went away. Oh, I think we had a little, fl okay. I think there was a glitch in the matrix. Okay. We're good. Can you oh, hear me okay? some, some, somebody's eavesdropping. As long as we don't see two black cats, we're okay. Right. Um, um, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer that. So, so there's, we've got, uh, you know, Calgary Economic Development. Uh, I've been seconded to them part-time since, okay. I think, 2019 um, when we started looking at this problem. And, and this is the fortunate um, or unfortunate perspective, depending on your, your lens, of being in Calgary in 2022. Um, we are a city in a place where, where change is uh, essential or we die, right? Um, if I hear- I would 100% agree with that statement, yes. If, if, I, if I hear again, Calgary's gonna be the next Detroit, I'm just gonna you know, literally lose it because that, <laughs> that's an assumption, not if we don't in fact take, take control of our destiny, right? Take control of where we're headed. And this is why I think you have so many people, whether it be that teenager or that you know, mid-career professional that says, mm -hmm. I want to change. So the first work we did with, with Calgary Economic Development back re released two reports called Calgary on the Precipice. And it, and it was supposed to be very much oriented around a warning shot. And the warning shot was um, to actually be a city that adapts. If we, can't, if we believe that adaptive capacity is the holy grail, we need to change as a city. As we looked at this, and this involved, it was, it was a really interesting project, Tyler, because I intentionally brought in psychologists. I brought in strategic management professors. I brought in professors from Alberta University of the Arts. I brought in practitioners um, in which we kind of looked at this. And what we, we identified was for a city to change, um, a city is just simply an ecosystem, 
right? But so you need the fundamental structures in an ecosystem to adapt that because you need an adaptive ecosystem. In an adaptive ecosystem, you need adaptive organizations. The organizations have to. And then the core of an organization are people. You need adaptive people. So trying to change any of those without starting at the root cause, which is people, which is, again, why I brought a psychologist in and how they think about how people adapt, was absolutely critical. So this idea about how do people adapt uh, brought us to a five-pronged strategy uh, and recommendations that we submitted to Calgary Economic Development as part of that. And that's essentially the model we're activating. And the, and to simplify it, there's, there's kind of three key dimensions as part of the strategy that we're working on that we've received funding through and are doing small-scale experiments at this stage to test some of these theories. The, the first one was we've got to invert the model. So when I told you in the past that the institutions culturally um, uh, control the destination of people, that's because many people believe they do. What did you do when you were five? You went to school. Somebody told you where to go, what class to go in. Somebody told you to write an exam. What did you do next? Oh, you went to high, uh, junior high. Why? Because your mom and dad said go there, right? And then you followed the mm -hmm. conveyor belt. Oh, you're done, done grade 12. What do I do now? Oh, I guess most would go to post-secondary. You keep following that conveyor belt. What's, share, what's shared through that experience is um, a lack of agency. The assumption is the system controls you. You don't control the system, right? So step one is people have to have an agency at the youngest age, but right through life to recognize I have, um, I have seven days a week. I have 24 hours a day. I have all these assets available to me, um, whether it be called formal learning, books, podcasts, my job, volunteer experiences. These are all part of my learning ecosystem. Right now, the question is: instead of what we call the ladder, which is the ladder says I climb on the ladder and I keep going, we encourage people to view the the ecosystem as a climbing wall. Right, a climbing wall allows recognizes that you can leave the ladder and look at the unlimited, infinite number of 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 ways to the top to keep climbing. And that, that one of those ways might be a part-time job. One of those ways might be going to school. One of those ways might be a book. You can go up, you can go lateral, you can go down. But point is, you're in control of your path. Somebody else doesn't control your path, right? Someone said to me the other day, they presented a presentation about just demographics and kind of, and he said, it's not a ladder anymore, it's a lattice. <laughs> He's like that yeah. because you can move sideways and feel just as rewarded, but you got to be able to move. And that was his kind of point, which I really liked. That's an, I like the climbing wall because there's many routes. There's many different routes on that wall and some are easier, some are harder, but it's up to you. And that's, I really like that. And the system doesn't set you up for that way of thinking right out of the gate. I, I go back to the root, back to the root always. Mm -hmm. So, so in that mm -hmm. model, um, and the lattice model obviously, obviously works at all. Uh, yeah. So well. it's just the visual that popped in my mind. Exactly. I literally just saw it on a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> so it was very fresh. That's all very fresh. What works there is, um, we just created an infinite number of new players in the system. Right, and guess what? They're already in the system. We're not building them from scratch because all it does is starts mobilizing and locking the current learning capacity in the system. Because the Center for Newcomers, the public library, all those assets are doing things. Like all the unlimited number of summer camps at a Windsport or Vivo YMCA are alert are teaching things. But here's but here's the problem. 
it's like, you know, again, changing metaphors, but there's a reason why when you walk into a restaurant and they say, here's the buffet, and you're like, oh my God, there's too much choice, and here's the set menu, right? And you know this as a marketer. Yeah, People like, oh, the set yeah. menu's so easy. The set menu's so easy. I, I, just, I, don't, I don't really have time to think about all the different options. Oh my God, oh my God, I'm just gonna go to the set menu. That's clearly what we're seeing right now. The set menu is called structured education, right? But at the, the difference is, is there's still perceived value amongst a variety of different stakeholders, parents being investors often, obviously the <laughs> students, uh, employers to a, to a certain extent, um, still see value in um, a type of a, a educational accreditation, right? Of this is a, 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 a something that signals something. I call most educational uh, accreditations or certifications really are proxies of something because they're not reflective of something, right? In other words, um, a, a, mm, one of I my students that, graduated yeah. with a BBA in marketing. You may sit there and go, oh, they must be able to do digital marketing. They must be able to write copy. No, the assumption is the marketing BBA is a proxy for something that in fact that's a whole different question of whether they are able to run a social media campaign or whether they're able to write copy. It's a totally different type of certification because what their degree is is a macro level certification, right? And an expensive one, and it costs, again, 10,000 hours and about yeah, 65. I, I, wrote that number, I wrote that number down, 65 grand, 10,000 hours on an average so, of four years, yeah. So, so but, but that's still valued, and, and I'm not dissing the value of that, but that's called a mm -hmm. macro credential. Right, A macro credential is an amalgamation of a variety of different things that say, here's the bucket, right? And the bucket uh, normally includes about 40 courses at, uh, uh, for an undergraduate degree that you've done, you've taken these courses, and you've developed certain skills um, uh, and certain competencies as a part of that. But again, what's, what's the, who decides what those 40 courses are gonna be? Who decides whether you learn something in those 40 courses? It's the proprietary asset of a post-secondary institution and the faculty there, right? The holy grail that we're working on right now is, is, is what, again, this decoupling model that says, mm -hmm. huh, what if this, to trigger the agency that's necessary, um, what if uh, accreditation and certification was in fact own a public asset as opposed to a proprietary asset? Right? What if at the end of that, I could sit there and go, I want to certify somebody in this particular skill, digital marketing, for example. Mm -hmm. um, here's the criteria we have decided you need to meet as, as a community to be defined as a digital marketer. Normally, we'll be laddered at, we're, we're laddering at three levels in our model, right? Whether you learned that in a classroom, whether you learned that on a YouTube video, whether you learned that uh, because you worked for 15 years, whether you learned that as 40% as of our labor force are new Canadians, if whether you learned that in another country, like the driver's license, I don't care. Um, can you challenge for that? Are you, can you demonstrate through evidence your ability to execute? And if you can, you are then going to be awarded that public accreditation certification that will be recognized, right? So, so where that works neatly is my students going through the BBA, all of a sudden, instead of having to wait four years to be recognized, could in fact start building their, their credentials out by saying, I'm pursuing mm. that four-year degree, 
but I then can create a series of off-ramps and I can modify my curriculum, prepare my students for those skill challenges. And they then can ch challenge and build that portfolio up while they're going to school. So they don't wait four years for the prize. In fact, what, and this is back to confidence, Tyler. Instead of, remember, we have mass attrition problems in post-secondary, right? So my son, for example, left Mount Royal after year one. So what happened? $20,000 bill, right? He actually had very good grades, right? Yep. Basically, he had the confidence beat the crap out of him. Why? Because he quit. He, it wasn't viewed as successful because he quit, right? Mm -hmm. What if there was a prize at the end of year one that you could challenge for to, in fact, demonstrate you learned a lot? And then if your journey allows you to go to work for three years and then loop back um, and move into quote unquote second year, that's fine. But you didn't quit. You in fact decided to go laterally on that climbing wall somewhere else. We've got to do that because all we're doing by is crushing people's confidence because they're getting halfway through first year or through one year or two years and like, this isn't for me, which signals social, socially a sense of failure, and that is not working for anyone. So this decoupling model allows us to work, but here's the magic of it. The magic of it is this. I want that kid who dropped out of school in grade 11 and ran their own business or did a bunch of stuff on, on the, had a side hustle and running a little social <laughs> agency. I yeah. want that kid at 20 to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with my students because it recognizes that that kid has the skill. But from a hiring perspective, that kid does not have a hope in hell. Why? Because look at the job posting, right? The job yep. posting will not get We require this, we require that, we require the model. I, that yeah, kid absolutely. is crushed. So, so what does that do? We don't have an inclusive labor market. Our labor market is defined by a series of proxies, not skills and competencies. If we can, in fact, remove these proxies and turn them into actual evidence, whether you quit uh, high school or moved here from another country or or grew up in Alberta and went to a mm -hmm. university, you're all actually being tested at the same level by for the same challenge, for the same skill. An employer then says, huh, I'm going to look at all three of these candidates now, right? What happens now? They look at one, likely a kid of privilege who went to a university, has a checkbox or part of a checkbox of going through post-secondary, they get above the waterline. The two other never see the uh, see above the waterline. That's an opportunity for this city. Well, and you think about your own, you know, my own recruiting practices, and you know, someone who didn't grow up in marketing, but yeah, now runs a marketing agency, and you know, things that I tend to look at it very openly. But at the same time, you're looking at twenty resumes. There's a filtering system you put on it, and it's a filtering system that it, you have cognitive biases you don't even realize. Do we have enough pressure in our labor market right now? Because obviously, pressure creates change. <laughs> typically enough pain and we'll start to think about things differently because we have no choice than just default to the the way we've been taught to think about it is that contributing right now to this desire this opportunity to take advantage of this external pressure to create change here because yeah. again change management is an underpinning of everything we're talking about today and people like to hold on to what worked for them and what they if i invested my x amount of years to get into this tenure position you tell me and telling me it's a bad idea i'm going to stop listening in about three seconds in probably <laughs> or there's a risk i might let's put it that so, way so so here's your the externality is critical in regards to the pressure in the system right now and so the pressure is coming from a variety of places uh, whether it be public funding post-secondary institutions uh, whether it be employers saying i need these skills and the institutions aren't preparing them um the that's where the opportunity is and and again i i view life through risk management uh, the risk and, and so when you look at a hire this hiring decision 
this hiring decision, it's a very rational approach, Tyler, to use proxies to manage my risk. I'm looking for somebody that's going to define and, and deliver success. So I want to know the references. Who are the references? Yes, it's a cognitive bias, but guess what? Who act, Who the references are? The references are going to be biased towards somebody that looks like you, probably had a life of privilege <laughs> and so forth. So the, even so asking true. for reference is a bias in the system, right? So so I'm, the project we're working on right now is really interesting because um, uh, we're working on a project. It's called the Calgary Micro-Credential Consortium. We actually have seven post-secondary institutions collaborating on it with a range of really interesting community organizations, including the Council, uh, the Calgary Chamber of Volunteer Organizations, and a variety of different uh, nonprofits and organizations involved that says, we can do better as a city. And they're together around this idea of decoupling, of the ability to more efficiently collaborate because we all win. Is that, is certain institutions, is that not in the... Um, direct line of sight in the self-interest of, of some institutions? Maybe, unless mm, that institution yeah. recognizes and looks at the simple math. And here's the simple math from the UCP government over the last few years. Look at where the budget's gone in regards to budget yeah. increases or budget cuts. They've been very laser-guided, right or wrong, uh, on reducing funding to most U15 schools significantly. I think the A number is over 20% of their budget has been cut over the last four years, right? And schools like maybe a Mount Royal, and I can't speak to state specifically, zero budget cuts, right? Mm -hmm. So so organizations well, Ultimately, that follow, you can follow the money. And follow you can the math. Often see right? a tail. Yeah, follow right? the math. Yeah. Follow where the applications are going. Follow what parents are thinking. These are all investors in your businesses. And this mm -hmm. is where we're seeing a lot of maybe schools that or organizations that traditionally have not had the incentive to change, recognizing yep. that's where the puck is going. We got to get there. But again... It's a mm -hmm. lot easier for, for uh, community colleges or polytechniques to do that than an organization which 80% of their salary, 80% uh, of their overall cost structure are tied to salaries, of which an overwhelming percentage of those salaries are tenured faculty. Yeah, to say we're too. moving that way. So yeah, here's your problem. All right? Well, and to me, what, what encourages me is that you, know, you talk about change and disruption, and it often comes from the groups that are already there, but it's when they're willing to look at things differently versus, oh, we're going to do it, we're going to garbage this whole system and start from scratch. Time, money, it's just not realistic. Getting change with the infrastructure that's already there, but getting everybody on board to think about things differently. So to hear that you've got that kind of collaboration, that's, that's encouraging to me. That, 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 that leaves me with a positive taste around this actually getting some traction and making a difference. It's so what's, what's the timeline for you yep. from, because I appreciate listening yep. to you talk, everything is a pilot, everything is a test, everything is a test and learn, everything is a data point. What, kind of next phase or give us kind of the next six months to a year and kind of how you see this unfolding. Yeah, so we launched, uh, I encourage people to go look at trustedskills.org. So trustedskills yeah. is the uh, pilot program and it's the second wave of a pilot. First wave was last summer, second wave is this summer. And trusted skills is simply this. It's four decoupled marketing credentials that, that were developed in partnership with the Calgary Marketing Association in which working with them, doing a national and local analysis of job postings, I had my students interview 215 hiring managers 50% agency, 50% client. And from okay, that, nice. we then identified uh, four clusters of competency. So what we call marketing management certification, uh, digital marketing certification, content creation certification. And then the fourth one uh, is creative thinking, uh, which is okay. intentionally testing 
whether we can test something that's far more subjective, right, and contextual relative to the others, right? And, and what we're doing is we're going through a process. We've got funding through Calgary Arts Development uh, as part of this partnership to fund 60 certifications. The way that model is set up, the tag I'm using is professionals certifying professionals. So we've got a team of really uh, 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 killer reviewers we're, we're working with right now. We have uh, 60 people going through the process to be certified uh, in one of those four credentials. Excellent. They will then submit an e-portfolio. They will be then handed a reviewer who's an expert in that area and been certified to be a reviewer. That reviewer will then assess the evidence relative to the criteria and make a, a judgment call of whether they, they meet the minimum criteria, which would award them a level one, or exceed it, which would be a level two or level three, they will then be given a digital badge of, of recognition at that point. Now, obviously, from a scaling perspective, 60 isn't changing the world. So the next phase no. of this in the fall, as we're working with our partners, is looking at the path to scale. So how do I go from 60 to 6,000? The way that has to work, Tyler, and you as an employer in this space has to know the only way this works is when employers start asking for it. The minute employers start yeah, saying, "Yeah, that's my immediate," I'm like, "I can't wait. I gotta. I'm gonna go do some deeper diving after we get off the yeah, off this." I'm <laughs> looking for somebody with this certification. Guess what that does? That will then motivate those candidates to say, "I need that certification." Well, that's when you get the push pull. You get the both sides of the equation. And you know what that will do in this system, then Tyler? That will then create the skill developers like myself to say, "Holy shit." I better start modifying my curriculum. I better create new programming to prepare students for that, right? That's the market model. And we've seen it in other areas where you yeah. start unlocking that. And therefore, that kid could be prepared by just working or that individual could be prepared by taking a class at, at Bow Valley or at a state to prepare them that for their certification. But the difference is because it's decoupled, they can go anywhere in the system or nowhere in the system, frankly, to prepare themselves because the yeah, certification is a public asset. Not <clears throat> the entrepreneur in me loves everything about what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a, it's the public asset is the key, is the, is the disruptor because it allows organizations to say, what do we need to do to challenge, to prepare people for that certification? Can we create a bigger pie? And, and, the, and so we're working on the business model. So for example, our certification team has paid $300, right? For each e-portfolio e they're, they're reviewing, which takes probably between two, two and three hours, which is part of the mm -hmm. business model. That transaction uh, for the pilot is that $300 is being funded directly by CADA. So the applicant is not okay. paying that. But the monetization of that in the future would be an applicant would have to see X dollars of value for me pursuing that certification, which would be yep. six out of 10 jobs I have I want to pursue are asking for this. There's the poll, right? Um, and then they might say, huh, I'm not saying it's an either or, but right now, back to the imposter syndrome and speaking about our, our discipline of marketing, guess what? It's a hell of a lot cheaper than saying, I'm now going to pursue a degree in marketing or I'm now going to pursue mm -hmm. a diploma Absolutely. in marketing because I can do eight of them at 300 bucks each. And that's a lot a lot more efficient because I have expertise relative to pursuing an extended degree. Not saying there's any other model because I believe that in fact the models work together, but yep. it provides the system to work together more efficiently. And that's our test. Well, and as an employer, what a fantastic way to increase skills and to you know create a little bit of a, of a stepping stone sometimes in marketing. What is it that gets you that raise? Is it time? Is it that you did great with a client? Like there are some challenges there that are inherent where I have a lot of buddies that run companies with skilled trades and they get their next level of certification and they get their 50 cents an hour. And 
I, sometimes I look at it and love, I'm like, wow, that's, there's something appealing about the, the very structured environment that that is. And I'm like, oh, that's just, how could that ever work in marketing? I'm feeling hope now listening to you talk that I now see how it could work in, in so Tyler, quote, unquote, the, the, the real the world. Most, <laughs> the most important part, and to your point, your hmm. skill trades is a fantastic example. Remember when I talked about the challenge of the, uh, the climbing wall is a lack of navigation because you're walking into an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? If one of your junior staff or mid-career staff says, I want to be like that, what do I need to do? It's hard, right? I just Not had that conversation two days ago with one of my senior account managers. And she's like, well, I'm good right now, but I really want to move forward. What could that look like? And then we had that conversation about gap analysis and like if to have a solution to pull out and go, actually, here's a way we can do that. That's very inspiring. <laughs> so step one, step one is the trusted skills processes of self-assessment. But you're not self-assessing yourself. You're self-assessing yourself against the criteria of your goals. Which Right. And then it's like, I, I'm hitting six of them, but the, the other four I need to work on. Selfishly, it, I'm really glad you picked marketing on this one, David. <laughs> well, it's, it, it reflects an easy <laughs> shot because it's, a, it's yeah. an area that we've all struggled with. Because I always say, it's funny how engineers can call themselves marketers, but marketers don't pretend to build bridges, right? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm, yes. Okay. Well, I won't get all ranty at the end, but yes, thank you. <laughs> you know what it's like. Just described, uh, you know, Christmas dinner with Uncle George. But anyways, we can yeah. talk about that another day. <laughs> Oh, yes. No, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. Um, <laughs> David, this is such a great podcast. I feel you and I could go on for hours and hours, but uh, thank you for really laying it. I really appreciate if the audience has hung with us here for an hour and 10 minutes because I really value that you laid the framework of what we're leaning up against and what is, you know, maybe has worked in a way, but is no longer serving us. That's okay. Like you said, it's not right or wrong, but it creates an outcome. And then the inspiration and why, where you're drawing from to create a different outcome based on a, maybe a different reality. And certainly from a pure business perspective, there's a different need from the, the, the customer needs something different. And if we don't have product market fit, we go, we go away. <laughs> and this, the, this institutional world has kind of self-insulated and that's a bit, that's super dangerous. It is, institutions the, that maybe should have gone away. And I'm not criticizing anybody yeah. or pointing fingers. I'm just speaking a little bit. But the, the simple rule in this for your staff, the simple rule for this, anyone listening, you're the boss, right? Do not uh, blame agency, the system over your, because over that is about um, not assuming that you have agency over your future. If you think you have agency over your future, um, it changes how you look at all these experiences and opportunities. It's not the system that controls you. You control the system. That it is becomes the immediate true a la carte, right? That's yeah, disruption at scale. Failure. That's disrupting. That's disruption quickly. We don't have <laughs> to wait thirty years for somebody not to have their tenure because we can do that instantly and overnight. And mic drop. I feel like I got a micro credential in the education system today, which is which is I do this. I, 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 my audience always knows I do this if no one else listened because I get to have conversations with people like yourself and go. Well, there's about thirty things I had no idea about before I got on this call this morning. David, thanks so much for the work you do. And clearly you're inspired about it. Your passion is coming through in spades. And this is no easy task. Like this is, this is moving a big boulder up a hill. But when you're inspired, that boulder gets a lot, gets a lot lighter. Um, obviously, you put trustedskills.org out there as a place to visit. If someone wants to talk to you, obviously you're on LinkedIn. Any other, any other preferred passive communication if anybody wants to reach out? Yeah, all our research is consolidated at the cityxlab.org. So cityxlab.org. And that is nice. all the research we've done across a variety of different disciplines in this area over the last, uh, really over the, most of the last decade. Um, and that's uh, a lab of the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University. Fantastic. Sir, it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I feel we'll be having a to be continued on, on this one, maybe, maybe in the fall when we've kind of got your next cohort and how things are moving forward. But that was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your passion. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you.